Okay, our learning is dedicated, as it is each week, to Shandol Gittel Bas Chaim Shaul, whose year I believe was yesterday. Neshama should have an aliyah. And we're uh, always very grateful to our generous anonymous sponsors who do so much anonymously for our community uh, for the, uh, this year and for our Emuna WhatsApp group. If anyone is not on the Emuna WhatsApp group and wants to join it, please uh, let me know afterwards. I'm happy to get you on. Okay, we're on Ozayin. We're in the Nesiva Shalom, Yisodei Atorah, Maimar Aleph. Still going through the Slonim Rebbe's insights into Emuna. You see it, it's on page Memvav, O Zion. And I want to invite you, if, if you have questions or pushback or challenges or want clarifications, I prefer this to not be a monologue. So feel free to interrupt and offer and share whatever you like at any moment. Rabbi Seinu HaKadosh Malkovich, Zuchus Yagin Aleinu, the great Rebbe, Hosifa Od Nekuda Kedusha Ba'inyan Emuna. He added one more holy insight into this concept of faith of Emunah. That what happens when you don't feel Emuna? Life has dealt you some difficult cards. Or it's not that you're going through a challenge, but just you're not really tuned in. You know, we have highs and lows. There are rhythms of life, seasons of life. And just like... Uh, there are seasons of the world, there are seasons in our own personal lives. And we go through periods where we feel Hashem's intense presence and we respond with gratitude and with a sense of dependence on Him. And there are periods of life where we just feel not connected spiritually and we're struggling spiritually. So what happens when Eino Margish Emuna Belibo? It's a great way of putting it. Even when you don't feel Amuna in your heart, you have to know that you have Amuna in your blood. That our forefathers, our ancestors, bequeathed to us, they imbued within our very genetic material, our DNA, when on the outside, when on the surface, we feel distant and apart, Alienated, you don't feel intensely spiritual. My davani is just not flowing. My chesed, my mitzvahs are just not going. And I don't really feel and connect. And even in those moments, don't give up. Don't abandon. Recognize that it may not be in your heart at that moment, may not be on your mind in that moment, but it remains in your blood. It's in our genetic material. We have so much else in our genetic material, like irritable bowel syndrome and diabetes. And so. We have so much negative in our uh, genetic material that, uh, you know, whatever. So much negative in our genetic material. We might as well, we might as well take advantage of the positive in our genetic material. And our tradition, Maisa Avosim and Lebanim, the Ramban in Bereshis, and it's one of the Ikarim of our Masora, one of the foundations of our belief system, is that our ancestors endured tests to realize strengths in themselves that subsequently became planted into our DNA. That we have capacity, and we have strength, and we have ability that we don't begin to appreciate. That they gave to us. And this is one of them. That even when we feel apart and at a distance, we're going through a season of life in which we're not intensely connected to Amuna, to Hashem, it still remains in our blood. It is a morasha. A morasha means it's an inheritance. We have this, it's an inheritance that we have. You see this in this week's parsha. In a few places. It says in... Uh, yeah. Uh, speaking of DNA... Yes. 
a group of scientists, non-Jewish scientists, decided to determine, because the kahuna is passed down father to son, thousands right. of years, they decided to test the DNA of the Quran. Right. And they all had one thing different than every other Jew. The, that, that's accurate, and there are studies printed. There's two problems with it. One is that there's a tribe in Africa who also had the same right. chromosomal right. abnormality. Right. Right. So either they're all koanim or Maybe it doesn't mean are. anything. The second problem with it is well, it, it's a lovely thought that binds kohanim together, but it can't attest to the legitimacy or authenticity of a kohen for the following reason. Right. It's possible that that kohen received that in their gene through their mother. Right. Which isn't necessarily, right. which wouldn't right. make them a Kohen. Right. Uh-huh. So, but it is an interesting piece of research. So, two places in our parsha, we say in Az Yashir, in our parsha, the Jewish people miraculously cross the sea. They look back and reflect with a deep sense of of uh, appreciation and gratitude, and they sing Az Yashir Moshe. At that moment, they sing Shira, something no one before them had ever done. We talked about in the parsha class yesterday. Why? What do you mean? Avram Yitzchak Yaakov, Sarif They were all grateful. What's the difference between Hodah, gratitude, and Shira singing to Hashem? We spoke about that yesterday. So they were the first to sing Shira. And in that Shira, in the Az Yashir, they say, we say it every day in our davening, Ze keli ve'anveyu, elokei avi, va'aromamenu. Ze keli ve'anveyu. This, they pointed. Ze, this is God. Wow. Everything's come together beyond my wildest dreams. Everything now makes sense. The pieces of the puzzle are fitting together. I'm not just looking at the pinpoint dot in the canvas. I've taken a step back and I see the whole picture. And when I do, I realize God's divine providence, God's kindness, God's greatness. And I say, Zeh, this, this God, Zeh, this is my God. Ve'anveyu, I'm going to dedicate my life. Ve'anveyu, ani v'hu, my relationship with Him. I'm going to represent Him in this world. We just spoke about a few moments ago at the Sha'ar and Shir, that we are to be a mirror to reflect godliness into this world. And the more that we are aligned opposite God, the more potent, intense our projection of God into this world. And we're misaligned when we're off a little bit, or we're not opposite God at all, then we're not reflecting godliness, we're reflecting other things into this world. So, what's the second half of the Pasuk? Elokei Avi, the God of my Father, and I will exalt Him, I will praise Him. Well, Zekeli, if he's your God, what do you have to come on to the Father? Rabbi Salavitchik said a beautiful insight. He said the Rav, Zekeli, you know what? This is my personal God. And my journey and my story and what I go through in life and my experiences give me my own unique, personal relationship with Hashem. But you know what? What happens if my experiences and my journey don't make me feel close to Hashem? What happens if I'm not connected? What happens in the season of life in which I don't feel spiritual? Said the Rav, you know what I tap into then? You know what? Even if I'm not feeling it personally, I remember my responsibility in a link in a chain of those who came before me. And my parents, and my grandparents, and my great-grandparents, and everybody had a relationship with Hashem. And even if I don't feel it personally at this moment, I will never compromise this chain. I will not be, I refuse to be the last link. So we strive for a level of Zekeli. He's my God. I see Him, I experience Him, I have my own independent, unique relationship with Him. 
But even in moments where I'm not feeling that, Elokei Avi. That's what the Rebbe is saying here. Morasha hilanu me'avoseinu. Emuna is an inheritance. We are a privileged generation that when your emuna is waning, go find an observant Holocaust survivor. I don't know how you can get a greater injection of emuna in your life. Whatever you think you're going through, and I don't mean to minimize people's challenges and struggles, they are real and they are painful. But believe me, whatever it is, Holocaust survivors went through times a six million. They went through enormously. And those who are heroic, and we're not judging those who struggle with their faith at all, but those who heroically maintain their faith, they are a shot in the arm. They are the Eloke Avi. That's our Avi. They're all of our collective forefather who give us the inspiration. I was once teaching a group of teenagers and we were having a whole discussion about evidence of Hashem's existence and is He here and so on. And some of the teenagers were saying, you know, I don't think God exists and here's why I don't think He exists and I'm confident He doesn't exist and here's why I'm going to live my life with the assumption He doesn't exist. And I said to them, they were like 15 or 14, 15 years old, and I said to them, I still remember, Rabbi Klein, Allah Vashalom, was alive, and they all grew up getting candies from him and knew him and watching him. And I said to them, I'm not asking you to base your faith on the fact that Rabbi Klein has faith, that Mr. Judovitz, Yibadul Chaim Tovim Baruchim, has faith. I'm not asking you to base your observance because they do. But here's what I'm saying to you. Are you so sure at 15 and 15 years old that you have all the answers and that Rabbi Klein went through what he went through, he's wrong and you're right? Don't you think maybe you should live a little bit more of life? Go through a tiny percentage of what he went through in years or experiences and then draw your conclusion. But I said, do me a favor. At least leave it as an open question. At least leave it as a possibility. Does Rabbi Klein's faith Mr. Judovitz and so many others, does their faith not at least leave it as a question for you? So that's the Eloke Aviva Aromamenu. Morashahi Lanome Avoseinu. We have a tradition. We have a history of people we could look at who endured and yet maintained faith. So in our moments of personal struggle, where is Hashem? Why is Hashem? Or not even struggle, just, you know, I'm not really feeling it. That's when we tap into the Morasha. That's when we go to the savings. A Jew has to believe that in their essence, the Pintaliyid, at their core, they're a believer. In their heart, there's a light shining bright that sees Hashem with clarity. But what happens? There's a thick cloud covering it up. Sometimes it could be in the summer in Boca Raton, three o'clock in the afternoon, the sky turns pitch black, starts raining, and you think, I missed Mincha. It's time for Marif. It gets pitch black out. The cloud can be so thick, it can cover the awesome bright sun to the degree that you think it's nighttime. You're confused when it is. And that's what happens with a Jew, with a person. Instinctively, intuitively, in our kishkas, we know this Almighty. We know there's something greater than ourselves. We know there's meaning and order and purpose to the universe. We know it. We feel it. We intuit it. What happens? Life gets in the way. People fail us. Our expectations are failed. We endure pain and struggle. 
And these are each clouds, and they get thicker and thicker and darker and darker, and they cover that sun. And even when the clouds are there, and we're struggling to make them dissipate, but it's reassuring to at least know that behind them there's a bright sun burning. In our kishkas, in our pintaliyid, in our instinct, we know there's a Hashem. We know it. I've shared with you many, many times already. But that's Rabbi Hanan Wasserman's incredible insight in Kovitz Mamarim. He says, how could you expect a 12-year-old girl and 13-year-old boy to have Amuna? They're obligated in all 613 mitzvos, and among them is Amuna. So you tell the boy, put on tefillin, you tell the girl, be careful with making brachas and davening, you tell the... And that you could do. They could regulate their behavior. Observe properly. Do mitzvahs properly. It's understandable. But you're going to tell them, the great, he asks us, the great philosopher Aristotle debated and struggled whether God exists, but the 12 and 13 year old kid should know it? Emuna, they're obligated in at that age? It's a great question. It's a great question. And I see none of you remember the answer, so I don't feel bad about repeating it. So, Rav Hanan says, Rav Hanan offers a magnificent answer. He says, you know what the answer is? The child is not expected to first learn faith at 12 or 13. If that were the case, you'd be right. It's a totally unfair expectation. It's unreasonable to think that so many adults who teach <coughs> and lecture and read and write philosophy struggle, but the 12 and 13-year-old kid needs to understand it. That's not the expectation. Says Rav Hanan, the child as a baby knew God existed. Why? Because a baby cognitively, as they begin to mature, they know, well, I have parents. They understand. The child understands the concept of a mommy and a daddy, of an ima and an abba. They understand they have parents, that their parents came from parents, who came from parents, who came from parents. And the child intuits that I have biological, physical parents, and it makes sense that I have a greater parent. When I speak to my four-year-old son, when we speak to him about Hashem, he doesn't stop and say, one second, could you clarify? Say, you know, Hashem, Hashem is so proud of you, Hashem would be disappointed in you. Isn't Hashem amazing? He says, yeah, Hashem. You ask him, who did this? Hashem. What's that? Hashem. He doesn't say... You know, we never talked about who is this Hashem. I can't see him. I can't feel him. What is Hashem? Right? That's only because you imbued that into your son. Not because he was born with that. Uh, agreed. I think he would be born with it even if we didn't talk. We reinforce it by talking about it. Yeah. But yeah, even if we didn't... surface. Right. But even if we didn't talk about it, the same way... Did we ever sit down and explain to him, here's what it means for me to be your mommy and Abba? Mm-hmm. Right? I don't mean... Biologically, here's what it means to be. But I'm saying the notion that people are created by other people and brought into the world by other people and therefore we have a responsibility to you and you have certain responsibilities towards us. Not only did we not have it with our four-year-old, we never had that with our 18-year-old. It's not a conversation. It's something people intuit. I have parents. I'm born to them. They have therefore responsibilities to me. I have a special relationship vis-a-vis them. It's intuitive. And if it's intuited to biological parents, it's intuited to our great father as well. So what happens, says Rav Didn't Abraham find God without anyone showing him also? He was first one. Correct. He found all by himself. Correct. Avram, that's a bigger question. The Rambam in Hilchus Avarazar tells the whole story. The Rambam departs from his normal code of law and tells this whole story of Avram Avinu. How, where he came from, and so on and so forth. But the Rambam there is very clear. Avram did not discover God. We know that, you know, Adam spoke to God, Noah spoke to God, we, Shem, Noah's son, Shem spoke to God, we have Yeshiva, Shem Be'ever. So there's a whole history of those who knew and talked to God. Avram didn't discover God. What, what the Rambam says that Avram did differently than everyone else is, they kept that secret to themselves. Avram decided to introduce it to the world. 
and he revolutionized the world with the concept of ethical monotheism. But you're right, we do have the Midrashim about the breaking his father's idols and his going outside and his asking certain cosmic questions that led him to the conclusion that there's a God. So says Rav Hanan, Hashem Yikom Damo, Rav Hanan was a Talmud of the Chavetz Chaim killed by the Nazis, says Rav Hanan that the child knows they're a God. You know what your responsibility is as a parent? Don't mess it up by the time they're bar mitzvah or bat mitzvah. Don't confuse them. Don't confuse them. Don't make them cynical and sarcastic. Don't confuse them. Don't introduce the cloud to their life that may be in your life. When they're four years old, they're happy to sing, Hashem is here, Hashem is there, Hashem is everywhere. When they're four years old, Uncle Moishi is the God of Lador. When they're four years old, and, and he is, Uncle Moshe is chus. He was here for Shabbos recently at the Weisses. I tell him this every time I see him. He is a Gadol Ador. He is a Machanich of the whole Jewish world, of generations of the Jewish world. I grew up listening to Uncle Moshe, and our kids are listening to Uncle Moshe, and please God, our grandchildren will listen to Uncle Moshe. And if every one of us could laugh when I make a joke of Hashem is here, Hashem is there, it's because of Uncle Moshe. Right. Yeah. So he helped fulfill this mission of teaching the children Hashem is here, Hashem is there, Hashem is everywhere. So at four years old, he sings that and he believes it. Don't mess it up by the time he gets to 13. It's not teaching Emunah at 13, that's so unfair, even Aristotle struggled with it. It's at four he knows Emunah, don't mess it up. Don't block it and cloud it, don't distort it, don't make it. That's Rabbi Hanan's magnificent insight. Yes. So it's never too late though, Never too late, of course not. No, 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 no. Never, ever, never, ever, ever to write. That's the, that's the Zekeli Van Veyu. Some people need to discover it for themselves. Yeah. They're okay, Aviva, Aroma, Menu. Sometimes it work for people. It's nice that this Morasha, thanks for the inheritance I'm not interested in. Give it away to someone else. They need to discover it. They need to earn it on their own. But we should be reassured to know that we have that inheritance waiting. To know that if it's not, even at the moment, it's not in our heart, in the Rebbe's words, it's in our blood. Yehudi tzarech la'amen, asher b'pnimus nafsho, that there are thick clouds, v'lo yipol ha'nofel barucho. V'lechorah, we're on the left-hand column now. L'chorah yesh la'avin. Ma'hu ha'yisod la'amen, ki b'pnimus nafsho ma'aminu. What is the foundation of the faith to know that it's in our kishkas, that it's in our core? We have enough chairs here. V'chikulam chaserim minam rachman al-tzlam. Are we missing any heretics? How do we know we're not one of them? Really, ideally, faith would be the natural inclination. You wouldn't have to work on it. You would know it's there. You wouldn't even have to exercise the faith muscle. As we say, Suuma Rome Nechem, Uruum Mibora Ela, Yeshaya Hanavi, Isaiah the prophet, lift your eyes and see who created everything. Kolaroa Sabriya Kula, Mitochnenes Bechol Ziv Hadrasa. If you contemplate the wonders of the universe, if you study the intricacies of the human body, if you understand how the sun and the earth have to be exactly that distance, a little bit closer, we'd explode with the heat. A little bit more distance, we'd freeze over, there couldn't be life. If you study science of the world, which is what the Rambam says, this is the Rambam writes in Torah, that you come to know God in two ways. We read his diary, i.e. his Torah, and we look at his creation. We study his world and we come to know him. So for example, right, if there was a grandparent or great-grandparent who you didn't have the 
honor of meeting in person, and then you discovered their diary, and then you also discovered their paintings and their sculptures and their architectural plans. You would come to know them through their diary, their words. You'd also come to feel you know them. How many of us have you know, artwork or something that our, our, our grandparents, they, they um, cared about? And when we look at it, we know them. We are reminded of them. So the Rambam writes, read Hashem's diary, this is Torah Kedoshah, it's His word. Study His world, biology, chemistry, physics. Go to the Grand Canyon. Go to... We're going to Zurich today, but we're not going to see the Swiss Alps. We're flying to Israel today through, through Switzerland. Rosham Shemafal Hirsch was asked by his Talmidim why he took off time from the yeshiva and teaching Torah to go see the Alps. So he answered them, because I'm afraid. They said, well, you're afraid, Rebbe? What does that mean? You're being Mavatal Torah to go to the Alps. He said, because I'm afraid that after 120 years, I'll come upstairs and Hashem is going to say to me, Shamshan, what did you think of my Alps? And I won't have an answer for him. Great idea. So, so you could see, you could see Hashem. We see Hashem most, most poignantly, most poignantly, most potently. We see Hashem most accurately, most clearly by studying His Torah Akedosha. We study the diary, that's where we have the greatest window into Hashem. But you know where else you see Hashem? The Swiss Alps, the Grand Canyon, the biology textbook, the operating room, the NICU. You see Hashem in His world. There. So Suma Rome, just open your eyes. Stop looking down, stop being closed off. Look around at the world, see it, understand it, experience it. And you can't help but say and conclude, Mi bara eila, who, can, who created all this? Whoever sees the totality of creation, contemplates it, thinks about it, has it penetrate their heart, can't help but see the glow of Hashem's glory. If you have even the smallest amount of, of mindfulness, even the smallest amount of contemplation, you can't help but conclude eye for eye that Hashem, He put the sun and the moon exactly where they are. It's not a coincidence. It's not randomness. As I just said, it has to be this distance, this angle, this rotation. Everything is designed to work perfectly. The human body the pulmonary system, the coronaries, every part of the human body, the reproductive system, the digestive system, the an iota of difference. We know the tragedy of a tiny fraction of a tiny fraction of a tiny fraction of something being off. Chromosome, one chromosome in the whole chain of DNA. One, Kodesh Baruch who designed all that. There is a designer. This is not coincidence. The other Abba, the onus is not on the believer. The onus is on the atheist. When you look around the world, it's not a challenge, how could you believe? It's a challenge to say, how could you not believe? As has been said, it takes more faith to be an atheist than it does to be a believer. It takes more leap of faith to be an atheist when you contemplate the world than it does to be a believer. A person sees a, a picture, a drawn. Would you say a bottle of ink spilled over? And would you believe? 
Look at this magnificent painting. Look at the picture. Look at the words on the page. How could you see the intricacies and the wonder and the details and the coordination of the human body of the world and say, eh, a bottle of ink spilled over and this is what we got. If you wouldn't conclude it about the paper in your hands, how could you conclude it about yourself, about other people, about the world? It's the most simple evidence and at the same time, the most compelling. But what's the flaw? People make walls and put on masks. In other words, the simple, logical conclusion is, there's an Almighty, He created the world, He's involved in our lives, He loves us, everything happens for a reason. But what happens? Sometimes that conclusion is inconvenient. That conclusion is inconvenient. And what do we do when we have an inconvenient conclusion? When the facts are inconvenient, what do we do? We make fake news. We distort. We distort the facts. And we change the facts. And we create alternative facts on all sides of all these issues. You don't even, I, mean, I think it's one of the challenges and tragedies of our generation is that we no longer know where to find truth. Take any given issue of the day and everything you'll read or are exposed to about it is agenda-driven. Are the immigration laws unfair or fair? Is it a ban? Is it temporary? Who chose the seven countries? The last president, this president. How should we as Jews feel? How should we... You can't... What are the real statistics about gun laws? Allowing guns stop crime or just taking away guns stop crime? You, everything is so agenda-driven and anyone who has a keyboard and an interconnection can position themselves and pose as an authority that we are living in an olam asheker. No longer do people have credentials and credibility and facts and research. It's just an olam asheker. As long as you have a video camera and a Facebook account, you can make videos about other people and say whatever in the world you want. And, and it's shocking to see how many people believe it. How many believe it? It's just not out there too because of the media today. Yeah, social media, media, internet... The, it's not the information age, it's the misinformation age. But it's not only true in public life. It's not a truth that exists only in the political arena. No. It exists in personal relationships. Absolutely. One person emails another person about their friend and that comes an email chain that goes around and So that that's like Yeah. You talk even if you don't talk flesh and heart, the information that you get that comes to you about things happening or other people. Right. They're it's not very truthful. Hundred percent. That's why. Colored. And that's Even why the onus. It's very destructive. The onus it's and hilarious. the burden is on us. That everything we read, we have to read with a discerning eye. We have to be judicious before we draw conclusions, before we forward emails, before we state things as facts. We have to know the source of of the message. Who is the messenger before we accept it? But the truth is that within personal, within a social environment and personal relationships, no one is interested in the truth. You can't say the truth. You've got to color it. You've got to be diplomatic. You've got to eliminate certain things. It's complicated, but underlying it all has to be a fidelity to the truth. So a person knows instinctively, says the Salam Rebbe, we know in our heart the logical conclusion, the obvious conclusion is, of course there's an Almighty. But what happens, that's what I was saying, facts get inconvenient. 
So what happens if you look around at what's obvious, namely there's a creator, there's an almighty, there's providence, there's dominion. What does that automatically mean for you? There's expectations of you. It means that there is a divine will. It means there's a divine law. It means there's divine expectations. For a lot of people, that's inconvenient. I want to just do what I want. I want to do what brings me pleasure. I want to do what makes me happy. Now you're going to introduce that there's someone else I have to answer to? That there's consequences and accountability? That there's expectations? That's not so convenient. So what happens, says the Rebbe? We build walls and we wear masks. We cover Hashem. We deny what we intuitively know and we justify and reconcile. I'm not 100% sure he's here. I don't think he really cares about that, even if he is here. And even if he created the world, I'm not sure he has a relationship with me. So we, we create all kinds of workarounds because the facts are inconvenient. So we put up a wall. I don't know who pays for the wall, but we put up a wall. <laughs> they are walls that block the light of the sun. The sun is still there. It's unchanged just because we're blocking it. When there's a thick cloud in the, in the, in the sky that makes us think it's nighttime, even in the middle of the day, it's the same sun. The sun hasn't gone anywhere. It's just the cloud is now conveniently blocking it. I don't remember if I told you this last week, but it's a brilliant insight into last week's parsha. Moshe, God tells Moshe, Bachatzos Laila, exactly at midnight. Did I mention it last week? I did? Kachatzos, Bachatzos. God says, exactly at midnight, I'm bringing the 10th plague. Moshe comes to power and he says, God wants you to know that eh, approximately midnight he's going to be bringing the 10th plague. Why did he switch from at midnight to approximately midnight? Did he not think God could deliver? So Rashi says, because he was worried that Paro's clock was going to be wrong. When Paro's clock would be wrong, if it was 11.59 or 12.01, what would Paro say? Nah, every firstborn in Egypt died simultaneously. Fluke, random. What a coincidence. Wasn't God. You see, he said exactly midnight. Came a minute before, it came a minute after. LMI, what must it be? Eh, wasn't God. What a co- wow, what a coincidence. So the commentaries ask, what, a co- what are you, crazy? Nine times in a row, Moshe and Aaron warned Paro, something unbelievable is about to happen to you. Out of the ordinary. Supernatural. And nine times in a row, they deliver. Supernatural. Out of the ordinary. And nine times in a row, Paro says, please make it stop. Just make it go away. Now the tenth time they come and say, about midnight, at midnight, God's going to strike the firstborn. And Paro miscalculated. It's 1159 out of 12.1. Could he really conclude that it was a coincidence? After the first nine came true, and the prediction comes true, it's just off by 12 seconds, they would really conclude there is no God? Is that possible? So the Panimia Satora says, yeah, that's the power of the psyche of man. Exactly what the Islam Rebbe is writing here. It's our power of when the facts are inconvenient with the life we want to live, we have an extraordinary capacity to reinterpret the facts, to reconcile, to justify, to change, to create fake news. Extraordinary capacity. Whether it's regarding what we eat and our health and we make things up to justify it, you know, whether it's about whatever the case may be. Cognitive dissonance, psychologists have a term for it. Cognitive dissonance is that when the truth doesn't match how I want it to be, I, this cognitive, there's a dissonance. Cognitively, I have this ability 
In other words, how could anyone smoke cigarettes today? It's suicide. If you love your family, you love yourself, it's an act of suicide. So how could anyone possibly engage in suicide? Because they have cognitive dissonance. They know it intellectually, but they explain the odds are it's not me and I've always done it and it won't happen to me and the chances are small or it's too late for me to quit now or they have to go through something in life that makes them quit. But it's cognitive dissonance. So what was true for Paro and the Mitzrim, that if it would have been 11.59 and 58 seconds, they would have said, oh, fluke, wasn't God. They just needed a hook. They needed an excuse. They needed a wall. They needed a mask. They needed a cloud. Something to hide God so they could pretend He's not really there when He was behind it all along. And we do the same thing. Because of this wall, a person falls into a distant, separate place from Hashem. Because they've placed, they've built a wall, they now don't see or the great light of Hashem doesn't penetrate. And the person can end up straying and draw all kinds of wrong conclusions. So they went through something in life that was difficult, that sounded small. When they were four years old, they were singing Hashem Azir, Hashem Azir, Hashem Azir everywhere. When they were six years old, they're at the Pesach Seder, wearing a classroom, saying over the Divrei Torah, using all of that. When they were eight or nine years old, they were, they knew it in Hashem, their kishkas, Hashem was there. They knew it. At 18 years old, Hashem disappointed them. At 25 years old, they went through something that was difficult. And it started as a small, well, what, what if? What if he's not really there? Well, what if he doesn't really care? Well, what if I don't really feel him? And with that little feeling, the wall starts small and then it grows. And the, the four-year-old Hashem is everywhere and I know it with all my heart turns into Kofir Umin. He's now blogging on the internet about there's no God and the whole thing's a farce and religion is the opium of the masses and it's not true. And that's the danger of the wall. Yes? I was going to say, I heard someone say that like people who were turned off to God and had a problem thing happened to them, they actually came back stronger after I mean, a trauma or right. something like that. Because this, the, the, whole, the whole experience brought them closer. So I had two meetings yesterday. I had, I had a meeting with a woman who's not from our community, whose husband has endured 10 separate cancers mm-hmm. and who has dialysis now five days a week mm-hmm. and who doesn't have either of his legs. Mm-hmm. And both she and he feel so blessed from Hashem and so grateful every day and live such great life and volunteer and donate and they're extraordinary people. And I met later with somebody whose niece had, um, would it be cystic fibrosis? I don't remember. And needed, ended up needing a lung transplant because the lung transplant got cancer, which often happens with a transplant. Mm. Thank God has recovered from the cancer. And we was talking about how she's you know, struggling and in a dark place. And, and what I said, I, I couldn't say this to a person going through a difficult time. They have to come to this on their own. Khalila, none of us are in a position to tell it to them. But the first meeting with the man who went through everything, what he basically said was, I have two choices. I can go through everything I'm going through and therefore be negative and fabisana and resentful and bitter and miserable about my life. Or I can choose to see the blessing that I have be positive and upbeat and happy and optimistic and be joyful in life. So I can blame others or I can make the choice myself about who I want to be and what kind of life I'm going to, I'm going to live. And that choice, that choice is ours. And I'm not suggesting that anyone should ever talk to someone going through a hard time this way. 
Only some, that person has to come to that conclusion on their own. It's not for us to enforce it or project it onto them. They have to conclude it. But the guy said, I can look at it as, woe is me, why in the world would God make me go through all those things? There is no God. Or I could look at it as, I went through all those things, I really shouldn't be here. Hashem is amazing to me. Look how I'm still here. My life while I still have it right. to the fullest. So which way do I want to be? Right? Chai Kohn's father, who recently passed away, was an outstanding person, blessing to our community for the short time he was here, went through a very, a lot of challenges in his life, a lot of hardship. You never met someone with more amuna. Five minutes visiting with him was a musa shmuz. It was unbelievable. At the very end of his life, literally in his last weeks of life, when it was clear that he was had a terminal illness, that there was alpiderach hateva in the natural world, zero chance of his recovering from, he was telling me, when I get better, I have to come to shul and meet with you. I have a project I want to start that I want to be in charge of. So a person looked at him, including his own children, wondering, wow, could he be so naive? Should, maybe, should we tell him what the reality is or should we keep it from him? Because he's so naive. They didn't think that. And I'm positive he wasn't. And I talked to him about it. And he said to me, you think I don't know my situation? You think I don't know the reality? He said, but I never would have gotten to where I am today and I can't get through these days unless I wake up every day saying, Baruch Hashem, the moon, everything's going to be great and whatever it is, it is, and it's going to be fantastic. Someone who lives with Amuna is not naive. Someone who lives with Amuna is not detached from reality, nor are they using it as a coping mechanism. It's not, it's not a drug of the masses, as Karl Marx said. It is a strategy for life. It is a decision. It is a choice. Happiness is not an emotion. Happiness is a decision. It's a decision that we make. I sent on the WhatsApp group this morning the Kotzka Rebbe's insight, which I also shared yesterday. I like to make the most of, I believe in recycling a lot. So, so we need I'm a big proponent this. of green divrei Torah. So, um, when the Jewish people, they're, they're not three days out of Mitzrayim, three days out of seeing ten plagues, the splitting of a sea, God's divine revelation in hand. They're not three days out of all of that, and they're busy complaining. There's no water, the water's bitter, I'm so thirsty, I'm so hungry, what kind of services there around here, they call this a menu, I paid for it. Uh, they're busy, you know, they're the Jewish people. Our good friend Gersh Wadron, when he owned a restaurant in St. Louis, on the receipt was printed, it used to say, was anything okay? <laughs> That's what was on the receipt. Said he ran a kosher, when you run a kosher restaurant, so he used to say, was anything okay? He made it onto, uh, who was it, Johnny Carson, David Letterman used to have, they'd show those things, like, so his receipt made it onto the show. Was anything okay? That's how we got the reputation, because three days, three days after liberation, three days after being saved from 210 years of persecution, they're busy complaining. And the Torah says, what's the complaint? That there's no water. And they said the water's bitter. And why'd they say that? Water's bitter, the Torah says, Ki marim heim. Aken Mara. The name of the place was Mara, bitterness, because they complained the water was bitter. The simple understanding of Ki marim heim is that the water was bitter. Comes along the Helegekatska Rebbe, and he says, no, Ki marim heim is not talking about the water. You know, it was bitter. They were, yeah, we were they, the miserable they were. people. Yeah. When you are bitter, everything tastes everything bitter. When you're sweet, everything tastes sweet. So the Katsuka Rebbe says, the water wasn't bitter. They were bitter. What do you see? Everything is perfect and beautiful? 
My friend Tony Gelbart likes to say, you know the whole debate, do you see the, the cup is half full or half empty? So Tony's got a great Einfall, he's got a great Chiddush. He says, no, the cup is not half full. The cup is entirely full. Half with water and half with air, but it's entirely full. Mm-hmm. So it's not, do you see the cup is half full or half empty? The cup is full. There's a third option that no one even sees. The cup is full, just half with water and half, and half with air. So kimarim heim, the people were bitter. So happiness is not an emotion. Happiness is a decision. It's a decision. There are, there's a clinical depression. Depression is a very real mental illness. There's struggles. They're legitimate. They need treatment, medicine. I don't mean to suggest that a clinically depressed person can choose to be happy. I once wrote about that. That's the worst thing you could believe. It's the worst thing you could say. It's the most unkind conclusion you could have. There are legitimate diagnosis challenges and the most cruel, cruel conclusion or thing you could think is, let's just snap out of it. Just choose to be happy. I'm not talking about somebody with a clinical depression. I'm talking about the Jewish people. I'm talking about, I'm talking about, is anything okay? I'm talking about kimarimheim. Kimarimheim. Choose to be sweet and everything will taste sweet in your life. Choose to be bitter and everything will be bitter in your life. It's all the attitude it's all the attitude that we bring. And the same is true with our Amuna. Wake up and God is nowhere and you won't see Him everywhere. Wake up and God is everywhere and you will see Him everywhere you look and that you turn. And while we think these are emotional decisions and conclusions, they're not. They're intellectual ones. And they all depend on what we choose to think about and how we choose to conclude. However, a Helegiyid who has Torah in their life and they want to fulfill the will of the Almighty and they're working on Amuna. By the way, this is another point that he's making here. Is that for so many people, losing faith is simply a pretext to justify something else that's going on. It's not really about questions of faith. It's not really about the questions of faith. It's really about that faith, what faith demands is incompatible with the life you want to live. That's for many people what it's about. Mm-hmm. The famous story about a kofer who came to Rav Chaim, Rav Chaim Brisker, a, a heretic who came to Rav Chaim Brisker. A, a, uh, a, you know, during that time of the Enlightenment, there were um, apikorsim. So an apikoros who had a Jewish education and who knew better. There were many from Volozhin who went off the derech and became apikorsim. So he came to Rav Chaim, Rav Chaim Soloveitchik, the Brisker, Rav Chaim Brisker, and he, had a, he says, I have a lot of kashas. I want to ask you my questions. I have a lot of philosophical questions about God's existence. And Chaim refused to answer him. So he asked, why wouldn't you answer me? I'm coming with questions. So Chaim says, I only give terutzim to kashas, I don't give terutzim to terutzim. Which means, I only give answers to questions, I don't give answers to answers. Sometimes people pose answers as a question. They pretend they're asking a question, but they're really providing an answer. Yeah. I only give terutsum to kashas, I don't give terutsum to terutsum. So sometimes there's a legitimate question, you have to engage the question. It's a genuine search for truth. It's a legitimate question. Sometimes the question is just an answer. It's an answer of how to get out of a lifestyle. It's an answer of how to excuse not being a certain way, how to reconcile certain things. So that's the danger. A person who genuinely is committed to and invested in a life of Torah and mitzvahs and personal growth, when they, when they approach the questions, they ask them as questions. They don't become answers. They remain questions. 
And even questions that don't have answers shouldn't become answers. They remain questions. We have a tradition of teku. We have a tradition of not always having the answers. It's okay to have questions. It's okay to live with the question. I love the Haman that just finishes paragraph. The person has to believe. So when you feel far from Hashem, when you're not feeling connected, when it's not flowing, when it's not going for you, there's two, act, two reactions you can have. You could say, well, I guess that was it. It was a fun ride while we had it. I guess I'm done. I don't really believe. I'm going to stop observing. I'm gonna stop. <laughs> or you could say, you know what? I'm looking forward to the clouds dissipating. I know there's still a sun behind the clouds. And tomorrow might bring a bright day. I can't wait for the clouds to dissipate because I know he's behind there. Sha'avim yechasu, or you know that it's clouds blocking the sun. You know, you don't feel it, you're disconnected, it's not flowing. But that doesn't mean that it's not all true and he's not there. It just means you're in a season of life where right now it's not flowing. But Pnimiyas Navshamaminu, Vizubachinas Mavakish Amuna Shakalishborhu Omer Eslach. That a person has to be a Mavakish Amuna, a searcher of faith, that even when it's not flowing, even when it's not going, that even when you don't feel it, you don't react by therefore ditching it, you react by therefore looking more for it, searching harder, yearning stronger. And I'll leave you with a beautiful insight from this week's Parsha that I didn't say or print or publish or text anywhere. I'm sharing it with you. Is that the beginning of the Parsha describes when the Jewish people leave Egypt. Hashem gave us Vashem holich lifnehem yomam ba'amud anan lan chosam adar v'layla ba'amud eish la'ir la'am. God traveled with us when we left Egypt. Hashem was with us. Vashem holich lifnehem. God went before us, and He protected us with the cloud of glory during the day and the pillar of fire at night lihayir la'am to illuminate the path for us. So that we could go day and night. And the Salonim Rebbe, not here in his Sefer, but in his Sefer on Shmos, says beautifully, what this means is, we Jews are to feel that in our journey through life, Hashem holich lefnehem, that Hashem is going before us, both Yomam Valayla. In the day, when there's clarity, when we understand, when things are clear, and even during the night of our life, even when there's darkness, even when there's dark clouds, even when he's hidden, even when we don't see him, even when we don't understand. How do we tap into that? How can we feel Hashem Holeich Lefnehem? When we are Laleches Yomam Valayla. When we keep going, Laleches, keep going, keep living with Emuna. Even when it's Laila, even when you're going through a season or a period where you don't see him and you don't feel him and you feel alienated and you're struggling for him. When you are, by the way, Laleches is the same word as Halacha. Halacha is the way. The way. way. Halacha guides us and regulates how to go through life on the journey. But if we are lalachas yomam valayla, if we walk with Hashem, not only in the good times and the clear times and the easy times, but laila in the dark times and the difficult times as well, then we will feel Hashem holech lifnehem, that He is with us, that He is clearing the way, that He is guiding us, that there is a meaning, there is purpose, that nothing in fact is random. So... Have a fantastic day and a wonderful rest of the week. Thank you so much.